I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Tawny Goodman, a native New Yorker, began her career in fashion as a model, but quickly decided to explore other areas of the industry. Having studied art, she joined Diana Vreeland at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. From there, she went to the New York Times Magazine to work with Carrie Donovan, before leaving to become a stylist with Life Magazine and various commercial clients. She was appointed Vice President of Advertising for Calvin Klein in 1988. There, she created iconic imagery for the company. After working alongside Liz Tilburis at Harper's Bazaar, Goodman joined Anna Wintour at Vogue in 1999 and served as the magazine's fashion director for nearly 20 years, responsible for dramatic editorials and innumerable eye-catching covers. In 2010, she was awarded the Eleanor Lambert Award from the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Goodman, a mother of two, works and lives in Manhattan. She's also known as, quote, the nicest editor at U.S. Vogue, end quote, per the New York Times. Hi, Tani. Welcome in my chair. Well, Quinn, I, you know, that was a very, very lovely introduction. I must thank you deeply for that. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime. I'll, um, you are known as the nicest editor at U.S. Vogue. And on my own unofficial survey of people who I know who have worked with you, I, there's no one who doesn't have anything nice to say. But not only that, everybody loves you. Well, do you know what? One um, editor who was a features editor, she wasn't one of the um, fashion kids. She said to me at one point, well, how come you're so nice? And I said, well, do you know what? I think it's because I have children. I think that the, that have the, the children element, when that comes into your life, takes over to such an extent that you realize that, you know, you always want somebody to do their best. You never want, you always want to play up what their best is going to be. And in doing so, you're nice. You know, it's totally counterproductive to be mean. If you need an assistant to do something and it's not going quite right and you yell at them, it's really not going to go quite right. If but you're nice, that's common, though, in your in your world. Well, it is. But I just think it's so regrettable because it's so much easier to be, you know, embracing. I mean. So how do you get when because you work with really big personalities? I mean from your entire career, whether it be photographers you, like, you know, Avedon to Calvin Klein, working at Calvin Klein to working at Vogue and with all the photographers now, how do you get what you want from someone while being nice? Well, here's what you do. <laughs> it's pretty easy. And this, this sounds mercenary, but it's not. It really isn't. You kill them with kindness. You can always get around something if you, if you do, first of all, you do not back them into a corner. You're not um, imperious, and you you're with them. And if you if, if you're with them, then they want to be with you to get it done. But they have to respect you. Well, that helps <laughs> for sure. Right. I read your book, which is amazing. I loved it, um, and I read the part. But it's funny to me that when you were starting out in fashion, you were a model for a brief time, and then. You were, you know, working with Avedon and working with Penn and working with all of these iconic photographers. But you were also such a baby and inexperienced in a way, if you don't mind my saying. I mean, you just kind of started. Was it such a different time then than it is now for someone starting out in the industry? Well, I think, I, yes, I think it is very different. And I, and I think that we're really talking now apples to oranges almost. But okay. I think the advantage that I had 
was that I grew up in New York and that I grew up in a family in New York City, in a family where both of my parents were very, very culturally oriented. So as a kid, I was taken to the ballet and to the theater and to the Philharmonic and to the museums. And it it was really woven into my DNA at a very, very early age. So I think that when I when I was working with Mr. Penn, for instance, um, I, I just I knew intrinsically to be, of course, extremely respectful, but also to listen, to realize the the privilege that I had to be with him, and you know everything that that my kind of everything that my parents gave me as kind of the basic tool of existence, along with culture was what did it for me. Do you think that your advice to somebody starting out now would be um, relevant? Well, which advice? (laughs) I mean, about, let's say a young stylist goes, how do I get into, you know, the fashion industry? Like those kind of generic questions people ask. And it's like, well, because at the time when you were coming up, could you give advice that would have pertained to you starting in the fashion industry? Well, I, I started by default, actually, right? Because I went to, I modeled, um, I graduated from uh, the Brearley School, which is an all-girls school in Manhattan. And I took a year off before going to art school in Philadelphia. And I, you know, tried modeling. And I, you know, I succeeded, really, because I was photographed by Bert Stern and Richard Avedon and um, Irving Penn and, you know, amazing, amazing photographers. Uh, but but I just was not good at it, and I didn't enjoy it, um, and they didn't enjoy me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to read. Um, I think this is such a great letter because I I do want to ask you about the person who wrote this letter. Okay, Diana Vreeland wrote, "Re Tawny Goodman. I think Tawny has the makings of a good model, strength and ease in getting quote off the ground." Tawny has not learned how to smile nor to use her eyes or to make herself extraordinary with her face. This is something you must teach a model and then see to it that she carries it out. Please do not fail this girl. Though she is not pretty, she pulls together perfect bones and proportion in an aristocratic manner. Um, it's heaven, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the fact that it's a memo, because I do have that memo framed, um, and you see all of the characters, all of the staff that is receiving that. And it's a mandate, the poor things. They're getting a mandate. And I think that there is a note at the bottom of it in a handwritten, isn't there? See it pictures. Says, it's like, who is she talking about? <laughs> um, so I think that she was being very, very generous. Um, sort of full disclosure, her grandsons were great um, friends of, of myself and my sister and brother. And so there was a personal connection. Okay. And I think that she was, I think she was very sensitive to that. And I think that she, that she, she was just very sensitive to it. When did you actually get to see that memo? Oh my gosh. Not at the time. Um, no, 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 not at the time. I don't know where that turned up. I actually don't know to tell you the truth. And what would you have thought of it? Someone saying she's not very pretty, but there's a thing. Well, I would have thought it was the truth. I was such an awkward model. I mean, I have such enormous respect for models because it is, 
you have to have the most generous bone in your body to give the amount that a very, very good model gives to the creation of an image. And I just was too self-conscious. I was too shy. I was too, I didn't know what to do. So I was not terribly generous. There are models who reappear in your book and in your body of work over and over again. I think of Amber Valletta, Christy Turlington, um, Carolyn Murphy, Carly Kloss. What is it about those women, other than obviously bone structure, um, that that brings you back to wanting to work with them over and over again? Well, it's such a good question. I mean, I remember when I first worked with um, Christy, and it was when I actually was a freelance stylist, and I started to be a you know freelance editor for Vogue. It was when um, Grace Mirabella was at the helm, and uh, this very young girl walked in. I think that she was 16 years old, and I was you know a new editor as well. And she put on a very very simple gray cashmere flannel cashmere dress. And she just knew what to do with it. She understood what what it was. She understood what kind of attitude was appropriate for it. She, you know, she understood what kind of um, body position would make it look the best. I mean, she was extraordinary. And I actually have those pictures. Mm. Um, and, And you can see it right away. It's the same thing with, you know, all, all of the girls that you have mentioned have this talent and this you know, ability to incorporate the fashion that they're representing in a in a very truthful way. I know that sounds very highfalutin, but it's it, it actually isn't. Because when you see somebody trying to pretend that they know what to do as a model, it's a oh, disaster. Cringe. When you see somebody that really understands what they're doing. I remember when Carly Claus came on the scene, again, she was very, very young, and I just happened to be in the back seat of a car with um, Anna Wintour going to the Met. We were checking out part of the exhibition that was upcoming. And Anna said to me, and we'd just come back from the collections, I think she said to me, so who do you think is the next, you know, big model? And I said, Anna, you're not going to want to hear this from me because she's young, but she's got it. She, she knows what she's doing. She, she has a, a, a true feeling for whatever she puts on her body. Hmm. And that was the end of that. I wow. mean, Carly, Carly used to come to the basketball games with my daughter. And, you know, she, she became a, a, a real friend. So speaking of the Met, um, you were involved in the first ever Met Gala when you interned for Diana Vreeland. Is that right? Well, not not quite. I mean, I was almost at the first, but she had actually had... Um, a show, I think maybe even two shows before I joined her. Um, I dropped out of art school and uh, didn't have anything to do. And of course, I knew her from, you know, the, the Nikki and Alexander, her grandsons. And I knew that she was kind of corralling um, volunteers to literally mount the shows. I mean, we li- that's what we literally did. We dressed the mannequins, we hauled them around the galleries, and that, that's what we did. Um, but there was the party of the year that, that, you know, the culmination was the party of the year, and it was incredibly charming because the night before the party of the year, there was another party, 
and it was the party for all of the staff. I don't imagine that Anna Wintour and Vogue are throwing a major party the night before the Met Ball now because it's a different thing, right? It's a different thing. But also what Mrs. Breland brought to that party was uh, culture because it was it was everyone. It was all of social New York. It was Hollywood. It was Cher in that feather dress from Bob Mackey. It was, um, you know, Richard Avedon. It was photographers, artists, writers. Uh, playwrights. It was everyone. And that's and what made it so vital. How did she get that guest list? Was it just the power that she had? It's the power that she had. And of course, when she was at Vogue, she was very proactive in, in promoting culture. There was a column called People Are Talking About. And in it, you saw all the new talent that was coming up in every in every venue. And it was, you know, people really watched it and looked for it because you knew that when when it appeared in vogue, as you know, people are talking about that was that meant something. And is that the case now? Um, yeah, of course it is. So I wanted to ask you basically what it was it like to work for Diana Vreeland. Okay, and, can we go back? Because yeah. I think my tentative answer was probably not terribly polite. Oh, I don't I mean I don't mind um impolite, but if you do, I'll go back. And is that the case now? I think so. Yes, absolutely. Because Vogue has a, a huge standard and that standard applies and brings everybody together and everybody notices everybody. And it's the standard, the highest standard. Do you think that Vogue's standard is too high for the fast social media, Instagram influencer world we live in today? Um, no, they, they cannot be mutually exclusive to one another because that is what the culture is today. That word again, culture. Um, I think that it is, you know, the standard is now being reinterpreted, I think on a very um, kind of populist uh, platform. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Populist platform. I understand what you mean. Because social media really is the great equalizer, isn't it? You can, you know, anybody can post on uh, Instagram. Anybody can give a message on Instagram. Anybody can take a picture on Instagram. They don't have to be a photographer. So it, in a way, it is the great equalizer. And then when you have to have an overlay of applying a standard to that, that's when it gets a little bit tricky, I find. And that's when you have to be discriminating and, you know, decide who you want to follow, who you want to listen to. At least I'm speaking for myself. That's very interesting. So you're using this kind of platform or technology that that is out there and then kind of figuring out how it works for you personally and probably Vogue figuring out how they fit into it as well. I, I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that everyone's trying to figure it out because it's so sensational. I mean, it's just the most remarkable phenomena that happened everywhere, globally. I want to go back a little bit just to kind of put a um, finish hearing about Diana Vreeland. (laughs) What was it like to work? I mean, she, from what I've read and seen, had a huge personality. Um, Did that prepare you for working in the fashion industry for another 30 years? Oh, oh, without any question. Without The first thing that Mrs. Vreeland taught me was you never – go to anybody when you need something except for the head of the company. 
You go, you get on the phone and you do not talk to anybody except for the head of the company. And, you know, that's, that's daunting to a young girl who, you know, is all of a sudden manning the phone and trying to find something out. But in truth, it kind of prepares you for the diplomacy and the etiquette and the posture that you need coming up in your life when you are navigating the world, in fact. But could that be inappropriate? Like, I don't think Anna Wintour would take a call from the, you know, second assistant of so-and-so. Well, she would probably take a call from the offices of Diana Breland. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I I think. I I was saying Anna Wintour today wouldn't necessarily take a phone call (laughs) from someone, you know, at the who was an assistant of an assistant. Well, I think you're quite right. I think that maybe that is, but I think, I think you're right. I'm going to back up a little bit because I think that things have changed. And I think that Mrs. Greeland and the unique spot that she's carved out very, very quickly working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It wasn't a magazine. It was a cultural institution that when people heard something coming through from Diana Vreeland, they were curious. They wanted to know what it was. And I remember, this is a very kind of charming story. I remember that Mrs. Breland wanted to have special wigs made for some of the mannequins. And she wanted them to be in acid neon colors. So I was <laughs> sent out to find out where I could get these acid neon colors. And in the end, through the process of calling companies, I found it at a fishing lure company. Hmm. And it was, you know, fishing lures that are brightly colored. Uh, and that's, and we connected with them and they provided us with materials and wigs were made. And it was really, you know, it was, it was so kind of magical and fun. Fun is a word that is kind of lacking today, I'm afraid. But, um, you know, explain that to me. Why do you say that? Well, I think that, you know, if, if I'm talking about today, today, I think that we've all had such a traumatic experience um, through the pandemic and reevaluating our what's important to us and how we will proceed in, in you know, the, the new world that I think that, you know, people are kind of afraid to have fun. But, but fun is an incredible kind of aphrodisiac. It just makes everything so much better. And it makes and the end result better. Like oh, the, the shoot? With, without, without any question. If you have a shoot where everybody's miserable, believe me, it's going to show up in the photo. Really? I think so. So you are at American Vogue, and you are, in my mind, the American woman editor. You represent the modern American woman, and you're surrounded by actually a lot of British women and Brits at American Vogue. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? And do you uh, agree? Um, I think it's a very fair assessment because it's a fact. There are a lot of Brits at uh, Vogue. And I, I agree because I think that, you know, just my DNA and where I come from and who my parents are and growing up in New York City, I am quintessentially American. I did, that's just part of I lived out in the um, in Colorado for a while. I lived on a boat for a while. I, you know, I just, I'm just an American girl. 
And I think it reflects in the way I approach, forgive me for the, um, I think it reflects in the way I approach a fashion image because I think that, you know, let's, you know, I don't want to make a big judgment because I think that's incorrect. But when you think of French, the French, you think of a certain, you know, amazing extravagance. Mm -hmm. Don't think of that when you think of the American scene. You think of something that is cleaner. You think of something that is more practical, something that works for, um, you know, a modern woman. You know, a modern woman it w- is was something new. And there, I remember, there's almost something life a lifestyle element to it. There, there is, and I remember when I was uh, caught wearing a fanny pack. And somebody said, "What are you wearing?" And I said. <laughs> Excuse me, I've got two young children. I've got to have my hands. So I wore a fanny pack. And how is American fashion versus different from British fashion then? Well, British fashion, in my opinion, and this is not currently, this is kind of an overall, um, you know, kind of generalization. It's it's more twee, isn't it? It's more, it's it's, um, a little less flamboyant. Um, one kind of thinks of a tweed skirt and a, and a cashmere sweater. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think that it kind of reflects the climate. I think that people are more, you, you think of more the, uh, the fashion being more covered up and kind of cozier in a way. Also, their weather is so dreadful that it's print on top of pattern, on top of color, on top of texture, like, it almost to me seems like to cheer you up. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, fun. Once again, there's that word. Um, so this is, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase something that um, you've once said. It is, um, I want to know when you're the American editor at Vogue, and you're not Grace Coddington, who is creating fantasy and you're not Phyllis Posnick, who is trying to capture something alarming and extraordinary in an image. It's very hard to stand out and get um, headlines when you're dealing with subtlety and reality. How do you, in your role, and correct me if I'm projecting onto you, how do you stand out? Um, well, first of all, thank you for saying stand out. Um, I think that. Um, you know, I think that people identify with imagery. And I think that one of the things that Grace does so beautifully is that it is a wish. They wish they could identify with that personally. With Phyllis, you know, her her work is absolutely extraordinary. And there's the kind of shock of, can I identify with that? Um, For me, I think that after having worked with Calvin Klein and his precision and his deliberation and the amount of time that we spent, you know, literally deciding whether the skirt was going to be an inch longer, (laughs) literally. Um, That for me, I mean, all, all of that discipline was applied to the imagery that I did. And so my imagery was neither, you know, a fantasy or outrageous. It was simply very, very truthful. And I think that people can and women do identify 
with things that kind of read of the truth. And are you okay without getting the big headline? Oh yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like the big, the I ca- always equate things because I love divas and singers and stuff. And it's like Grace Coddington is a an opera singer or a belter, and perhaps you sing jazz, and one is not greater than the other or better than the other. It's just one of them is louder. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that everyone. Um, defines their own space and the way that they, they do that is through their comportment. And I think, I mean, I have a lot of other things that live in my space. Um, my children, number one, absolutely. And my love of the arts. And, uh, you know, there's so much that inhabits my space that I, I feel completely, and this sounds very highfalutin, but I do feel very satisfied. Mm-hmm. Did you take it as a diss that you, and people may not understand, and maybe I'm wrong, but that you got to do the covers? I know it sounds like the cover is the, the most important thing at a magazine, but in the in the high fashion world, it's almost like the covers are com- more commercial and then the, the fashion story is where the real fashion happens. Well, I mean... There, there are degrees of that, of course, but but there is a truth to that. There absolutely is. And when I joined Vogue, I didn't know. I had no idea that I was going to be shooting over 200 covers of celebrities. That's how many I did for Vogue and continue to do. And, you know, it was absolutely a learning curve, but I was prepared for it for, because of Mrs. Breland, Calvin Klein, Carrie Donovan, Liz Tilbaris. I was prepared. And it was something new and fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what happened for me is that I think that celebrities more than anything else have got to trust you because if they don't, then you're both kind of, you know, trying to get something out of the other that maybe isn't there. So um, don't forget that I had a lot of opportunities to do incredible fashion stories with incredible photographers. Absolutely. But I, I, my, I, I am really interested in what, in what you're saying about the celebrities and getting them to trust you. Is that, is that something that you have to work on from the moment you're starting the pre-production and planning and in the morning when you got, everyone gets together or is it there or it's not there? Well, I think I think you have to apply it, of course. I think that, um, you know, once again, it's these very, very cliched words and, and terms, but trust and um, honesty and the truth, you know, it really does always win out. So if you are candid and if you're communicating and you're exchanging and you're asking what they want and say, but what do you think of maybe – adding this to it, then then there's a dialogue that is based on um, a mutual respect and trust. And and that does work in life, generally. Wow. But surely you have worked with people who have their own agenda that doesn't, isn't a Vogue cover and certainly isn't a Vogue girl. And you have to bring these images back to your boss who has a very specific world that is U.S. Vogue. 
Like, how do you convince an, this singer not to wear double, you know, eyelashes on top and another strip on the bottom or whatever it may be that you know is not your, it's not what you do? Uh, well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, I think that the publicist and the managers that surround them kind of prepare you for pushback. Okay. And then you can uh, kind of collaborate with them to say, well, why don't we, of course, absolutely, I understand that. Why don't we try something a little different as well and you know, see how it feels? I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, and I'm sure that any publicist listening to me or any actor listening to me is listening to me is thinking, oh, for God's sake. But it is kind of what I have experienced. Also, it starts with the um, fight over hair and makeup. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally I mean, ever. that's a big part of it. If you're working with someone that you want to elevate their taste level, I'm, I know because I do more celebrity, so I'm often the one who's like, We'd like the publicist being like, we'd like to use Quinn. And then Vogue is like, no, 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 we want Pat McGrath. And I'm over there going, well, I get it. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about shooting a celebrity for the cover is that you have to honor who they are as their, per, you know, the, the person that they have established that makes them a celebrity. And you have to honor Vogue and its standards. So there's a big swap going on. Right. And. And it's, it can be tricky, but it can also be very successful. My feeling about it, it's one of the worst feelings as um, a more celebrity hair and makeup is when you know that the magazine fought as hard as they could not to have you on the shoot <laughs> and have their person. And right. I understand. I get it. I admire the person that they're fighting for. So it's tricky. It's like, I understand that they want the person that the photographer has worked with for years. And, but at the other end of it, I want to do the job too. So I, I, I get it. Um, but it's a really hard feeling walking onto a set thinking that you're not wanted and that True. people don't believe in your ability to be there. True. And don't you find that, have you ever been in the uh, situation where you've given in? And you've said, you know, okay, so all right. And it, it turns into a disaster and you realize that you should have actually flexed a bit more. Meaning my, myself? Well, I mean, I, I have had experiences where um, I've been told, listen, the comfort factor is enormous. We really want these people to be on the set with them. And I understand Vogue's point of view, but it's it's very important that they're there. And then you give in. You would give in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You give in. Bo oh, gives in. Yeah. You have to, part of you say, put on your, your big boy pants and going in there and maybe, um, you know, definitely introducing yourself to the photographer and to everyone around and saying that I'm a team player and really trying to get the point across that I'm here to make the shoot successful. That's what I found. That, that's what, that's your personal talent because you understand that when you go onto a set it's very important that you don't isolate yourself this goes for everybody and that if you are kind of the odd man out then you really want to talk with the people who are holding the reins to find out what they want from you what they don't want from you what the idea of this the the, the vision is because you haven't been privy to the selection of the clothes the, uh, the selection of the uh, location, 
you, you, you don't have a lot of information to work off of. Correct. So you need to, you have to rely on them to, to work with you and give it to you. And I, I would say when I was younger, the goal would be to get in there, do your job and get out. And that doesn't work. I think it's much better to go in there and really make yourself available and open to everyone and not try to be unnoticed. That's not success. It's just being like, oh, nobody criticized what I did. It's like, you'll be remembered if you actually speak up or say the wrong thing, but have a point of view. Even if it's torture to get to where you want to go, the end result is what matters. Exactly. And when I was younger, I thought, oh, they criticized the hair, but they didn't criticize me. Well, that's not doing your job. Right. I mean, it's tricky because it's also very personal, don't forget. I mean, you come onto a set with some big wigs and there's intimidation, of course. People can be assholes. And I hate to say it, but I will, is there's a lot of people in the fashion industry who aren't nice, who do want to make you feel unwelcome and prey on any kind of insecurity. Right. And those are those are the unfun (laughs) moments that you endure and then you hope you don't get them again. (laughs) Right, exactly. You've been around for a couple fashion revolutions. The current one, in my opinion, the biggest is social media. You were also a part of the fashion revolution of putting actresses on the cover of fashion magazines instead of models. Were there people in high fashion who resented having actresses on the covers instead of models and therefore resented your involvement in it? Well, you know what? I think that, you know, it didn't really pronounce itself that clearly for quite a while. Okay. I think that people, you know, what happened when we started to put celebrities on the cover was that we got a whole nother audience, an additional audience. It wasn't just people who would look at the magazine cover and say, oh my God, she's beautiful. She's an incredible model. I love that dress. Now it was, oh my God, that's, you know, so-and-so. And And look what they put her in. And what's the movie that she's going to be in? I'm so interested in that story. I can't wait to see her in that. So that that was a big moment. That was a big moment of um, growth, I I think. You know, I hope I'm not speaking out of a turn. But I think that it, it really opened up another venue for the cover. And so the cover had even more responsibility. Because it wasn't the People magazine cover, obviously. It was the Vogue cover. And it had to reflect Vogue's standard. And all of the things that we've mentioned before go into finally achieving that that image. And what are the pressures of shooting a celebrity, a real woman, versus shooting a model? Um, It's very different. Uh, The difference between shooting a supermodel and shooting an actor, a personality, a celebrity, is that models are brilliant. They know what they're doing. They're team players. They are with you every step of the way, the the wonderful ones. They have fun. They make it fun. And it's a fashion shoot. When you work with a celebrity, many of them are very, very um, uneasy posing. Their insecurities come out. They don't have anything to rely on. They don't have their ability to um, to, you know, emote through a character. And um, 
So you ha- you have to be very gentle. You have to be very gentle and reassure. You know, it's not like you go over and pat them on the back, but you make sure that the atmosphere of the studio is very, you know, cordial and you know, kind of funny and um, informal and you know all of those things. But one of the good things to do with celebrities is to give them characters, and then they really have fun. They have a lot of fun. And is that done in the morning meeting, going over references, creating the mood for the entire day? Well, it depends. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of one a couple of years ago with Margot Robbie, who I adore. And we did create different characters for her. And one of the reasons we did was because the collections reflected a lot of different types and characteristics. So there was everything from a very, um, you know, formal Park Avenue woman to a beatnik, to, uh, you know, there was a very big, you know, very a masculine side of, of people. And she had a, I mean, we all had so much fun, um, you know, getting this character onto the set. Do you really research a celebrity before working with them, seeing what works on them, what doesn't work on them, what their lifestyle seems like, who they really are? What do you do to prepare before working with an actress for a cover? Intense. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, you're not dealing necessarily with a, you know, a sample size. And uh, you, you know, models are like genetic freaks. And I'm saying that in the nicest way. They are. Because the proportion is extraordinary on, on all of them. And, you know, us normal people don't necessarily have that. So I really do have to do a lot of research to see what are they hiding? What are they exposing? What do they feel good in? What are they, you know, putting on where you can tell that they're a little uncomfortable? Um, you know, yeah, you have, you have to do your homework. No, no question. And what did you do before the internet? Oh, God. <laughs> um, Just options. <laughs> uh, okay, so listen, before the internet, when did the internet, have you got the date of that? When it came out? Uh-huh. When we started to use it the way we use it now. Okay. Me not knowing officially, I feel like when the iPhone came out, that was when it really, like 2005, 2006, that's when it was really like you could be on set and if someone threw a reference at you, you could just look it up. Or if you didn't know where to find something, you could Google it. Right. I mean, we used to, you know, thumb through magazines for inspiration, for references, for, I mean, that's the way we used to do it. I wanted to ask you about references because some of my past guests use them all the time and love them. And others said that they don't like using them. So do you like using fashion references and how is that a part of your process? How do you use them for inspiration? I think it really depends on what you're shooting. If you're shooting something that really would benefit from a a reference or um, a provenance that that would be helpful to it, then absolutely. But if you're if you're venturing into a new category, um, I've done a lot of work um, visualizing for sustainability and you know all that stuff. I, I am the sustainability editor for Vogue now, and there you don't have anything that you can look back on. You're looking forward to the model interfacing with solar panels or, you know, finding an electric car and plugging it into something that you mount on the street. So it really depends on what the story is. 
Do you base whether or not you're going to use references on the photographer whom you're working with? Um, that's a very good question. Not, not really. Um, because, you know, well, maybe, maybe. I mean, some photographers don't want that at all. Um, but most photographers feel that, you know, it's, it's kind of an opening to a conversation. Oh, maybe you saw it that way. Oh, I remember that, you know, uh, expression on that model at that point. And I see where you're going. You know, it, it's an exchange. Definitely. Right. Do you think it's important for someone who is starting a career in fashion, hair, makeup, wardrobe stylist to know fashion references? Absolutely. Without any question. You can look at, I, I just think it enriches it. It's like when you go into a museum and you see an incredible painting and you know some of the history of where that painting came from, what was going on in society at that point, it just makes it more interesting. And the same thing is if you go to the ballet and you see a classical piece of ballet and then you see a more modern piece of ballet, it's all you know, peaking in interest. So I think that you're losing out. I mean, fashion has such an amazing, amazing range. And when you think of what people used to wear, I mean, the extravagance that it's just remarkable. If you don't know any of that, you are so losing out. What is the line between being inspired by a reference and just being a ripoff? I mean, we've all seen shoots that were inspired by Guy Bourdin or Helmut Newton, and they're so on the nose and so exactly the same picture just 30 years later that you think, well, what was the point? I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel I feel that if it really, really smacks of a ripoff, then it's a ripoff. And if it really smacks of oh, I see where that comes from, and it's pretty obvious where it comes from, but there's another element that has been thrown in here and it became a platform for this image, not the image. And have you been on shoots where you have felt like you were too on the nose or things were happening and you were like, we've got to completely turn directions? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think everybody has, I mean, I've, I've been on shoots where, you know, you go home, you think about what you photographed that day, and then you come back to the set and you say, listen, you know, I just think we should revisit that one photograph. And people, I don't think that it bothers them that much. I've never had a lot of pushback on it. Excuse me, pushback on it. Do you do you still have stories that get killed? Um, uh, not really. I think that, you know, I have had stories that have gotten killed for sure. And I regret it because some of the photographs are incredible. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, things have changed. The budget, budgets, forgive me, have changed. And you can't really, um, you can't really afford to kill these days. Um, Especially so, if you're with a celebrity, you have a certain amount of time with them. You can't. Exactly. And they have exactly. to be on the cover. So that yeah. adds another layer of pressure to it. Yes, it does. And who is your boss always in your mind as your judge or pre- the pressure that you're thinking about? Anna? Yes. You mean? 
Of course. I mean, I work for Anna. So, um, and I, and I think I know what she wants. And sometimes I think I know what she wants, but I think I, there's something that she will want more when she sees it. I wanted to ask you about what it was like to go freelance after 20 years of being on the map, you know, full-time employee of Vogue. Well, you know what? It was, it was a, a number of different things. It was opportunity for sure to be able to work with other people and to be, have different uh, projects. But it was also kind of bittersweet because, you know, Vogue is in my DNA. But, but the matter of fact is and was that the climate and the atmosphere was changing. You could feel it. And you could feel that there was a new wave that was going to be ushered in, which is absolutely what should happen. And that, you know, there was an evolution going on and that it was totally appropriate. So you took a situation where you had a full-time position of 20 years at Vogue and then are asked to be freelance with basically the same amount of job responsibilities, I think. And your way of talking about it is that it was, you know, it had to happen. It was the evolution instead of being like, yeah, I put in all this time and effort and look at what I got. And, you know, um, I can't believe they did this to me. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is just personality. It's just not a stance that I've ever taken in my life. And, um, I think you, you know, you're foolish if you do not look at the upside because the upside is there for you. It just has to be grabbed. And there's a lot to grab. I mean, I was very, very fortunate because the timing was excellent. I was working heavily on my book and I, it's, you know, it's a big book. It took a lot of work. And because Ivan Shaw, who really did change my life totally, Ivan Shaw was the, um, photo director at Vogue for many years. And then he became uh, eventually what he is now, which is the sort of the, the keeper of the archive, which of course is a very impressive position because think of what the Vogue and Condé Nast archive is. So he, because he knows, because he's, he's so fluent in so many areas of photography, he knows so many curators of photography across the country in museums. And I ended up doing book um, events at the National Portrait Gallery, at the Getty. You know, I went all over the country with Ivan. And, you know, if I had had three cover shoots back to back, that would have been a conflict for me. So you were ready in a way, even if you knew it or not. Uh, yes, I think... I think that, you know, I was graced with being prepared. But when something happens in your life that is unfortunate or that is, you know, less than ideal, in that m moment, do you choose? Is it a choice? Are you choosing to look at it positively or it's just your default setting? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think that... Um, you know, I think if, if anybody has um, looked at my book, they know that I have had breast cancer and that I was diagnosed with it when my daughter wasn't even two years old. And, you know, it was pretty devastating. But my first thought was, 
nothing is going to happen to me because I have two young children that I have to take care of. Hmm. And, you know, once again, it's that practical. I, I am very practical. You never, <laughs> in the deep, in the late, in the midnight hour, you never sat up in bed and thought, I'm, I might die? Um, well, I mean, I guess right at the beginning, I thought, wait a minute, how, how threatening is this? But um, to be honest, my father uh, was a surgeon. And when I met with my breast surgeon, he, we were just kind of talking. And he was saying something. And I said, listen, I understand completely. My father is a surgeon, so I'm familiar with this. And he said, is your father Ed Goodman? And I said, yeah. And my father was one of his professors oh. at medical school. So since then, I have had, you know, such incredible care from the medical, uh, you know, community. Incredible care. So I always felt that I was in very safe hands. But do you think that, because part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was so that people could learn something from successful people. And I think that there are certain personality traits or things that people who are successful in their field do. Do you think that that's one of them is that you just uh, always get back up on your feet or that you choose to be practical and positive about things? Do you think that that's something that people around you do as well? Well, I think that I do it. It's just part of my DNA. It's just the way I was, you know, I, the way I, I'm an optimist. I was just born that way. But can you be successful and not do that? Um, that's a good question. I mean, yes, of course you can. I mean, there are a lot of people who have, who operate better when the, um, the, the chips are down, you know, they kind of need a conflict Okay. bring out the best of their, you know, ability to face it and to conquer it. Um, that's, that's not what, that's just not the way I work. And so when COVID happened and everything shut down, did you find the positive out of it right away? Yeah, because I think, you know, in terms of sustainability, it was a moment to reset for every for the world to stop and and think about resetting. And, you know, I was very fortunate. My son was living in, in the building, so I had company. And I had um, a tiny, tiny little terrace outside of the living room so I could get a big gulp of fresh air. And, yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about sustainability. Um you know, we are, we are a capitalistic society and the point of everything that we do on some level is to make money. Can you, can you have a sustainable business model when, I mean, a magazine's whole MO is to talk about trend and what's next and where's fashion going and it's all about the future. How are those not antithetical to each other? Well, first of all, I think that the approach to um, creating fashion is going to evolve. And I think that, you know, a message that will resonate with people is that it's okay to spend more to keep it. Not, you know, it's not a trend. It's something that you have an emotional reaction to. It's expensive, but you know you're going to wear it forever. It is not about fast fashion. Also, I think there's, you know, new opportunities that, you know, it's, they've been there all along, but now we've had the opportunity to rethink things 
And designers can use dead stock. They can use, they can upcycle. They can, you know, there's so many different ways that you can stay, you know, vital and, and exciting without having to, you know, shut down because you're not going to make any money. But isn't there, isn't there something that has to be done about the insatiable desire to purchase more and to buy more and, and be uh, on the cutting edge? Well, once again, I think that, um, yes, of course there is, but I think that the, the state of the world is really going to mandate that people have second thoughts. I think they're really going to start to think about their emotional connection to fashion, what it means to them, what it, what it means to them when they are embracing fast fashion and buying something and then discarding it, and how that is going to be such a dirty word, so to speak, um, in society. Like flying privately or having a yacht. Well, all, all of the above. Well, that, like, it used to be so like um, cool if you were to, to show that off or to, you know, now it's kind of like if you care about the planet, you're not going to put on Instagram that you're flying privately with one other person. Right. It's, yeah. it's faux pas, right? Yes. Um, unless think- you're tone deaf, which also is totally acceptable these yes, days. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I think all of this in, in terms of um, personal awareness is coming into focus. And I think that people are going to stop and kind of listen to their personal awareness and what is meaningful to them and, and, and start to, to turn around. So how do you sell magazines? Well, you sell magazines because the, uh, the visual image is still there. It is. And the challenge is always to keep it exciting and vital and something that, they don't expect to see, you know, it, it is a challenge, I think, because of social media and because of the internet and everything else that is available. But I don't think it's dead at all. Would you be a proponent for fewer collections? Because that also kind of plays into this machine of, of consumption. Um, yes. Uh, when I worked at Calvin Klein, we had, you know, the fall collection had different delivery dates. So in doing that, you had, you know, your pre-fall collection and you had your resort collection all embedded in that one collection because merchandise, you know, was available to the buyers at different times. And it would satisfy that need to have something new in the store. So you've you've spoken before, and I actually wanted to ask you about uh, about being a mother and working in the fashion industry. And we've gotten a question from Laura Loves Makeup underscore MUA is how to live and work balance and motherhood in a creative role. So I'm really interested in knowing how did you balance that with the rigors and the stress and the the life that you had to have as the top editor at Vogue and then also be a mother? It's a challenge. There's just simply no question about it. But when your heart is in both of them, in both places, then you kind of work it out. I mean, I, you know, sort of maybe too much information, but I was nursing my children. I only had uh, six weeks off then. And I was nursing my children and I would have a 
little tiny freezer put in my hotel room. I would pack up everything in dry ice and I would bring it back to, I would bring it back home. I mean, I just, you know, I invented time. (laughs) It was always something that really intrigued me. It was like when you had to stop to do something for the kids before you needed to run out and be at a meeting, you literally invented time because it wasn't there before, but you made it. And, and I don't know. I mean, the joys of having children are so uh, remarkable. Um, and they, of course, feed your creativity because the, you know, seeing through their eyes, when you look at the artwork of children, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's mm. so unfiltered and it is so, um, it's just so remarkable. Tani, you said in your book that when you had two kids, you were a single mother and that your sister Wendy ended up watching your children when you traveled, which was quite a bit. Right. Did you ever consider just retirement, like giving up and becoming a full-time mom or doing something that wasn't as demanding as being the fashion director of Vogue US? Um, No, I, I really didn't because I love what I do. I find it, you know so important to my life, important to the life that I'm going to be able to offer my children from everything that I was exposed to, Um, the talents that I have worked with that my children know. I mean, I used to, um, when the kids were very, very young, I would bring them onto the set and I would bring them into the motorhome and I would introduce them to the models and I'd let them see what Pat McGrath was doing. Because then when I wasn't there and they were home alone without me, they knew where I was and they could mm-hmm. visualize it and it wasn't a mystery for them. So, But did you, did you have to, like I in my life, and I don't have children, have missed a lot of important events from people around me because of work. Did you have to miss a lot of things with your children? And it, does the sum of it all, it, it, it equals out that you're okay with that or... Well, my, my children never presented something that was taken away from me. I mean, I, I have had enormous support from my family. So when you say that Wendy often took care of the children, it's true. So if I had to, you know, fly to Europe for a cover shoot or for the collections, Wendy would be there. And so I never, well, first of all, I'd like to say hello to my son. Okay. Um, sorry. So. My sister, Wendy, um, would take care of the kids and stand in for me. And it was, of course, invaluable because it allowed me to to pursue, you know, kind of being enriched by a situation that was very extraordinary and very privileged being in Europe with the biggest talent at seeing the most beautiful clothes. And, uh, you know, that, that it's really extraordinary. It's not it's not normal. Right. And also maybe you were modeling for your kids to follow their passion and live their life. And their- I, hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think, the, you know, I have definitely been a product of my parents' influence without any question. And so I hope that I can certainly, you know, claim to have given my children some of that. What do you think about the influencer culture and is it taking over fashion? Um. Gosh, 
it, you know, I almost sort of don't want to answer that because who knows? Um, bye, Cole. Bye, Cole. <laughs> bye, Cole. Um, do you, like, do you know any more than I do or we do about where everything is headed? No. No. I, I don't. Do you? No, absolutely. I mean, it's the Wild West. I have no idea. I mean, I just think that what is so extraordinary is the power of the influencer. I mean, what is that? There's a tipping point there someplace. And I, it's, mis- it's a mystery. What, what is that tipping point that makes somebody who, you know, likes the, the hat put on backwards to become the influencer of how to wear a hat? And, I mean, it's and is it, it might even be a shitty hat. Exactly. And <laughs> the person may not even be attracted. Not that you have to be attracted, but. It wouldn't hoit. It wouldn't hoit, exactly. <laughs> um, is the fashion industry only for the young? If you look at brands and who they're paying to um, promote their their items, if you look at who designers are friends with and who's on the covers of magazines, where where does age fit in with the fashion industry? Well, that's been the, excuse me, age-old question, hasn't it? I mean, there's always been the um, kind of... Uh, Unba- it's sort of an imbalance between, uh, you know, who who is your audience and who how are you going to capture your audience? Who's going to be able to buy your clothes? And I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that today, an older woman is going to have much more of a chance of relating to whatever is whatever imagery is put out there. Because we've had a huge kind of, um, uh, you know, change, huge. I mean, between diversity and inclusivity that has literally turned advertising around almost overnight. For the good, I think, mostly. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's what I think is the thing about social media is that as much as I complain about it and and how I think that it's taken away from things, it's given a voice to people that never had one before. And so it's almost as good as it is bad. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it is good. For that reason, it's terrific because exclusion is ridiculous. And the people at the top for too long with the power to change that didn't do anything about it. Correct. Right. But, and also, but when is it too far? I mean, I I also think that, and this is like, you know, so on PC, but like, we can't overly celebrate being unhealthy or really large if that's, if it's not healthy. I mean, if it's your body type, that's one thing, but are we, I mean, at what point do we say, uh, well, maybe we should promote maybe not morbidly, morbid obesity, you know? Well, you know what? I think you're articulating it very um, kind of gracefully because I I think you do have a point. I think that when you um, are advocating for something that isn't healthy, that's not good. Yeah, like maybe before a shoot, we should have everyone has to go up four flights of stairs and you can't be winded, you know, and that would be like the litmus test. (laughs) Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's an interesting one yeah right i would you know i've never asked a guest about this but what is your take on cancel culture 
Do you know, can I say something to you? I have no idea what that means. Okay. I have read over and over again about cancel. Would you just give me a 101 on what that actually means? Well, I can't tell you without my own bias because, I mean, it means that if somebody says something that the ma- – that the I think of it as if somebody says something that the masses feel is not um, socially acceptable or conducive for a brand, then they all come out and say, you can't say this, you can't do that. And if you don't, we're not going to support the brand that's paying you. So it's really, cancel culture is really tied up into capitalism, because I don't think without capitalism, you couldn't have cancel culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also a bogus term that means nothing, because a lot of things do need to be canceled. Things should have been canceled in this country a really long time ago. So when when it's finally like people's rights and and uh, giving a voice to the unheard and not uh, tolerating blatant racism or systemic racism, then, you know, it's like, that's a good cancel. Right. When it's people on Fox News complaining that they can't have Confederate statues, that, you know, then they're saying cancel culture. Well, you know what? I think it's bogus. It just is a real, it's a way that you reevaluate your morals in a capitalistic society. Never well, articulated it that way before, but so it's meaningless. Of course, we need cancel culture. Some people should be canceled. <laughs> true, true. I mean, I have always kind of interpreted it with a very political slant. Um, so I, I'm really interested in what you said in terms of um, capitalism and and. Well, I do think it started out as a conservative talking point. Yeah. And and about preserving the white identity of America. And that when you tried to cancel Confederacy or different kind of um, images of the white American, that's how it started. And then I think it got flipped upside and it was this whole, you can't say anything or tell a dirty joke without being canceled. Right. Right. But you know what? If you don't care about the paycheck more than you care about your voice, you can't be canceled. You know, the canceling is from corporate America. The, that's right. the bottom line. Right, right. I mean, freedom of speech is, you know, freedom of speech, isn't it? Yeah, but you say it and then live with the consequence of it. Yeah. Right? But also you can say, you can say something that should be canceled. So it's a it's a very tricky slip. But also story. some people are canceled, but they need a road back to redemption. You know, we can't just say because you've said something that people don't like that you're forever, you know, extinguished from society. You know, it's it, that's why it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, here's another hard hitting question. When did you decide that you were going to wear white Levi's for the rest of your life? Oh, my God. Do you know what? I have no idea. I think that when I joined Vogue, I've always had a uniform of sorts because once again, practicality, it was just easier. When I joined Vogue, my uniform every day was kitten heels, fishnet stockings, and a Ooh, pencil skirt with a um, with a turtleneck, a black turtleneck, or a you know a dark shirt, and that was and that was the that was the uniform. It was so easy. It was chic, you know. It was Vogue, um, and then. I think practically it was easier to kind of put on a pair of jeans. And the thing about blue jeans is that they do have a place. Blue jeans have a place. 
white jeans have much less of a place because they're so versatile. You can, you know, you can rough them up or you can dress them up. I mean, well, they're not that practical, Tawny. I mean, every time I wear white, I, I see everything I've eaten that day and everything else on them. Well, I hate to say this because now I'm really going to be, you know, skewered. Canceled. But, <laughs> canceled. Exactly. Is that, you know, you throw them in the washing machine and you maybe you put a tiny little bit of bleach in there. Um, and, uh, and you have a couple of pairs. Yeah. But how are you not a mess by 11 a.m.? I don't know. I guess I'm just very neat. And do you have a favorite stain remover? Oh, mm, what's that pen thing? Oh, the shout pen? Yeah, one of those little pens are good because it's not like dumping a whole big thing into the washing machine. It's just like, a, you know, on the spot. Um, my other question is, why do all the Vogue editors prefer cats over dogs? Um, They do. Well, you, Grace, is a cat person. It just seems like everybody's really into cats. Now, how do you know I'm into cats? I read your book. Don't cat? <laughs> no, here's the thing. I inherited a cat um, years and years ago. His name was Paul. And I thought that he was staying with me for just a little while. And it turned out that he lived with me for a long, long time. And then I, when I was living out west, I had um, Rosa, who is my uh, golden retriever. And she really belongs in my heart. But cats and are more fashion. Well, the poses, the attitude. No, I think that, you know, I don't know. So anyhow, when the kids were young, I decided to get kittens. And, you know, we got rescue kittens that were black and white because this apartment is pretty much black and white. And they were both such remarkable characters. And Tiger still is. Shadow is no longer with us. That it wasn't like having a cat. There's no preening. There's no attitude. They're it, they're much more like a dog. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you got lucky there. I, I I think there's a lot of people who would disagree about that. Um, I wanted to ask you my final question that I ask everyone who's been on the podcast is, if you could go back in time and meet yourself anywhere, where would it be and what would you say? You mean from from experiences in my lifetime? If you could go back and meet Tawny at this stage in your life or that stage in your life, where would it be and what would you tell yourself? Wow, that's a really tricky one. Um, gosh, that is such a good one. Um, maybe at the Met with Mrs. Reeland. Um, because it was such an eye opener and it was so thrilling and it was so, you know, everybody came through the galleries. Jackie Kennedy was there, Jackie Onassis, forgive me. And, you know, all of the the people that Mrs. Breland knew came through. And I just think I would probably say to myself what I did say to myself, which is you better soak up every single second of this because this is extraordinary. Hmm. Do you have time for a quick game before we wrap up? Sure. Okay. Living or dead. This is a photographer who you would love to work with. That I haven't worked with before. Right. Mm, 
Um, well, slim errands is one of them. Let's let's say that. Okay. Um, the last great meal you ate was. Uh, the last great meal I ate was some remarkable pasta that I just flung together, just like that. You made it. I did. I oh. love to cook. Oh, okay. Um, favorite place to shoot on location? Um, anything that's new. Any new horizon, really. Okay. Least favorite place to shoot on location? Uh, any place that's cold. Okay. Do you have one in mind? No, just cold. Yeah, just anywhere cold. Yeah. If I wasn't a fashion editor stylist, I would have liked to have been. I would have liked to have finished pursue, you know, pursued art and be an artist, whatever that means. My go-to evening look is white jeans, a velvet shirt, velvet uh, slippers. And my pearls. Most women do this when dressing and shouldn't. Uh, judge themselves? I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, you have to wear one American designer for the rest of your life. You can wear anything they make, but only from one designer. Is it A, Ralph Lauren, B, Donna Karen, C, Calvin Klein, or D, Michael Kors? Uh, are we talking present time or are we talking in general? Um, okay. Well, let's say in general. Okay. I mean, it would be Calvin Klein because that's where I started. Um, and you know, the simplicity, the minimalism, the precision, the discipline, I completely understood that. And, you know, I I felt like I was home when I was with Calvin. Where, and what about now? What's your go-to designer if you need to buy something or well, I'll, I do have a great deal of grease uh-huh. because yeah. I think that it's so wonderful. It's classic. You know, there is a very classic element to it, but it always has a very um, creative and artistic twist or turn to it or addition or whatever. I don't know. I love Dries. The men's is amazing, too. Um, you have $400 a week for one year to be spent on... Weekly fresh flowers, weekly massage, weekly dinner out, or weekly facial? Flowers. Good one. Uh, your go-to restaurant is? Um, Bar Piti. Your go-to client is paying restaurant? Um, Le Bernardin. Uh, go-to florist? Uh, farmer's Market. Fashion needs more of blank. Fashion needs more of, well, you don't want to use the word sustainability because it, you know, kind of is meaningless, but fashion needs more of a sustainable conscience and practice, sustainable conscience and practice. And fashion needs less of blank. Fast fashion. My happy place is? With my children. Nothing puts me in a bad mood more than? Um, waste. Okay. And nothing puts me in a better mood more than? 
uh, the arts. All right. Well, Tani, I just have to say this is a dream come true having you on my podcast. I'm so honored and humbled and all of that kind of talk that you agreed to do it. And I can tell why people say you're so nice and you're easy to talk to. And um, I just can't thank you enough. Well, it's been a total pleasure. And I'm so sorry that I was remiss and late and responding and all that kind of stuff. But when you, your ears should be burning, I did have dinner um, with Phyllis last night. Oh. And I mentioned that I was going to talk with you. And she said, oh, my God. She said, well, Quinn, is, he's so easy to talk to. He's so charming. So your ears should be burning. Thank you. She's and great. I felt like I was like when I was working with her on the episode, it was like I was it was my only chance to work at Vogue. Like I'd write copy and she'd send it back with corrections. And we just like parsed words. And I was like, this must be what it feels like to work at Vogue. Well, and I was so happy to do it because she's so legendary. She is so legendary. And, you know, as my daughter used to say, um, my child, forgive me, my child used to say, uh, she's a genius. She is. And so, and, and so are you, and, you know, people play these annoying games about which sex in the city character are you? And I just find it so cringy, um, you know, like, Oh, I'm Samantha. I'm this and that. But when I think of which, which Vogue editor would I be as a makeup artist? I'm definitely a Tawny. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. So, Thank you so much. So Quinn, wait a minute. I want to meet you. I know. I want to meet you too. I would love to. 